He kōna e purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Any on an issue? There we go. You're meant to do climate change. I believe that you are part of a group that's apparently quite worried about climate change as journalists. Yes. Okay, then. <laughs> um, I think we've run out of time. It's been 20 years, but you're going to have time for climate There's like. always time for climate change. Oh, it's happening in front of us, isn't it? Hear that sound. Listen to it. Actually, that's quite ironic. We've run out of time because that's what we could say when it comes to climate change. That as is well. absolutely right. Yeah. That was Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern back on the 17th of September, appearing on Three's The AM Show. The group she was referring to there was Covering Climate Now, a collection of more than 300 media organisations from around the world, reaching an audience of over a billion, who committed themselves to increasing their climate change coverage in the weeks leading up to the UN Climate Action Summit on the 23rd of September. And NewsHub was among the New Zealand media organisations that signed up, along with TVNZ, RNZ, the New Zealand Herald, Stuff, the Otago Daily Times, Newsroom and the spin-off. The result was almost certainly the most intensive period of climate change coverage in New Zealand's history, culminating in last week's climate strike. Kia ora, good evening. It's one of the biggest nationwide protests in New Zealand history. An estimated 150,000 people today adding their voices to the campaign against climate change more than double the turnout of the first strike. The streets from Northland to Invercargill were awash with demonstrators of all ages, joining together to demand change. And as that one news report made clear, it was young people leading the charge. New Zealand's third nationwide strike, part of a global movement including more than 165 countries across seven continents, all organised by young people, inspired by one of their own, unafraid to take on their leaders. You all come to us young people for hope. How dare you? If there was one person who dominated coverage both here and internationally, it was Greta Thunberg, who we just heard there, addressing the United Nations Climate Action Summit. But not everyone in the media was enamoured by the 16-year-old Swedish climate activist. And Greta Thunberg, I'm sorry, but a hero for, for young people. She totally overplayed her hand at the UN. Too dramatic, and this just, just turns people off. For world's most annoying kid lecturing adults with a startling amount of hot air and hyperbole. Yeah, Greta. I'm not affronted by her because I'm old and grumpy and white and I'm, I'm threatened by a teenager. I find that argument sort of pathetic. I think we have every right to, as adults who've lived a life full of experience, to look at a kid who probably should be in school instead of sailing around the place shouting at the UN and go, yeah... Yeah, what do you say to the likes of Duncan Garner, Mike Hosking and Kate Hawksby when they attack the 16-year-old messenger while ignoring the message? Well, as it happens, Greta Thunberg herself was asked about that in an interview with Canadian author Naomi Klein, which kicked off online magazine The Intercept's Covering Climate Now coverage. They cannot argue against, because I'm only saying what the science is saying, and you can't argue against... Physics, if there's a fire there and I, and I say it's a fire there, we need to, to, to put it out. Put it out. <laughs> yes, we need to put that fire out. It's like the most reasonable reaction would be that you look at the fire and say, like, oh, we need to put it out. Yeah. But now they, they seem to be like, they look at the fire and they look at me like, what are you wearing? 
We could fill a programme with the local and international commentators who wanted to talk about Greta Thunberg rather than the fire. Suffice to say, there was a lot of childishness, almost all of it coming from those north of 40, in opinion pieces purposely designed to cause outrage and generate clicks. It's the business model. And we could fill another programme with the avalanche of opinion pieces defending Greta Thunberg published by the New Zealand Herald, Stuff, The Spin-Off and RNZ in response to Duncan Garner and Mike Hosking's musings. To extend Greta Thunberg's metaphor, it's as if the nation's columnists and opinion shapers turned their backs on the fire to defend the climate activists' dress sense. The New Zealand Herald alone ran columns by Paul Little, Liam Dan, Jamie Morton, Eleanor Barker and satirist Steve Braunius criticising Hosking and Garner. And in an interview, climate scientist James Renwick declared himself a Greta fanboy. Two days after Greta Thunberg addressed the UN, the International Panel on Climate Change released a report on sea level rise. A new United Nations climate report is warning that the lives of hundreds of millions of people are under threat from rising sea levels. It says sea levels are rising faster than previously predicted and ice is melting at an unprecedented rate. And one of the report's co-authors, Massey University professor Bruce Glavovich, left RNZ's morning report listeners in no doubt as to the seriousness of the report's findings. Well, to start with, it shines a spotlight brightly on the fundamental importance of the oceans and frozen parts of the planet for life on Earth. And the fact of the matter is that changes that have been underway in these systems um, imperil the health and well-being of humanity and life on Earth. But as far as we're aware here at Media Watch, the IPCC report failed to inspire a single column in New Zealand. NewsHub's 6pm bulletin placed it sixth on its running order after stories on the death of a student at a hall of residence, a child being swept out to sea, Fonterra cutting 63 jobs at a cheese factory, the National Party being upset it can't use parliamentary TV in attack ads, Jacinda Ardern's appearance on The Late Show, President Trump's latest impeachment woes, and Boris Johnson facing heat in Parliament. Then, 24 minutes or so into the bulletin, they got to this. A new United Nations report is warning that climate change appears to be accelerating and the polar ice melt is having a devastating impact on the world's oceans. And the report hammered home the point that climate change is happening now and in our region. Scientists studying the impact of the ice melt on the Solomon Islands have found the alarming proof of the catastrophic effect that global warming is having. Of 33 islands in the Solomon's chain, five have disappeared beneath the rising waves altogether. The package by ITV's Rachel Junger was as gripping as it was tragic. Gladys, who grew up here, has watched entire islands disappear. She takes us to Carley, where her grandparents had a home, but there's no trace of it, and her face says it all. This is my first time back in five years, and yeah, there's literally nothing left. I never thought it would disappear in such a short period of time. Across On One News, the IPCC report was 13th in the running order, with all the same stories as News Hub, plus one on a sex attacker being arrested, an earthquake in Pakistan, the possibility of the price of strawberries going up if more horticulture workers aren't allowed into the country, and African swine flu. Its story on the report began like this. The latest warning from a United Nations climate panel could spell trouble for our winter tourism. For the first time, the UN has done a comprehensive audit of our oceans and sub-zero climates, revealing more major concerns for our planet.
RNZ's drive time checkpoint program didn't feature the report at all, but it was reported by RNZ's first up morning report and Dateline Pacific. It took 150,000 New Zealanders taking to the streets to convince the 6pm news bulletins that climate change should lead the news. Parliament's lawn was full and still they kept coming. Tens of thousands of people too marching up Auckland's Queen Street, Cathedral Square and Christchurch, Kaitaia, Napier and Dunedin. All asking the same question. Why are you still letting climate change continue? Do you even know what the consequences will be? But quite possibly the biggest protest in New Zealand's history failed to rate a mention in the country's only national newspaper, the Sunday Star Times, two days later. The paper did find space for a column by David Aranovich on Greta Thunberg. That night, TVNZ's Sunday programme had the inspired idea of putting some of New Zealand's climate strike organisers in a room with some of the country's biggest polluters. So who's the biggest problem? Globally, I'd say the fossil fuel industry. Uh, BP, ExxonMobil and Z Energy turned us down. More locally in New Zealand, if you look at our emissions, 49% of them come from agriculture. But in New Zealand and Fonterra stepped up. What are you expecting today? Oh, a bit of a grilling. I've got three children of my own, and so I know they can ask the hard questions. And Luke Weijon, who you just heard there, and fellow climate strike organisers Lucy Gray, Gemma York and Sophie Hanford, got to question representatives from Fonterra and Air New Zealand. There is a promising feed that, that the cows can eat that reduces how much methane's made in their body. Do we have time to wait for that technology when we actually do know exactly what we need to do? It would have been good to hear more of that grilling, which was tightly edited to fit the Sunday format. But regardless, it was refreshing to see the young not only setting the news agenda, but getting to ask the questions. So, with climate change now, the UN summit and last week's climate strike behind us, how did media rise to the challenge of covering what some are calling the biggest story of our age? New Zealand Politics Daily, a digest of the day's most significant stories, included 129 climate change stories during the week of covering climate change now. During that same week, Media Watch took a look at the top four stories on the main New Zealand websites once a day. The results clearly showed that the media was willing to give blanket daily coverage to a topic it knows very well at least half the population has very little interest in, a topic some sceptics claim is utterly unimportant, but that didn't stop them committing huge resources to covering every conceivable angle of the Rugby World Cup. The Covering Climate Now reporting was also impressive, but not on anywhere near the same scale. The New Zealand Herald, for example, featured climate articles among its top four stories four times, compared to 14 stories on sport or entertainment. RNZ had six sports or entertainment stories and three climate ones, and stuff which led the pack when it came to climate stories, with eight, had 12 sports or entertainment stories. There was no shortage of excellent backgrounders and innovative approaches to covering climate. The New Zealand Herald launched a podcast. Stuff ran a series of cartoons by Sharon Murdoch. One News ran 10 Covering Climate Now reports. And Newsroom pulled out all the stops with climate coverage dominating much of its coverage that week. But it still lacked the urgency of something like the Rugby World Cup. A recent RNZ Morning Report Christchurch mayoral debate ended like this. 
I've got the rat, and I really wanted to get to climate change, but we'll have to save that for another day. So I I do want a quick comment from all three of you on what can you offer people in terms of how you will prepare Christchurch for uh, the impacts of climate change. I'll start with you, John Minto. The three candidates were left with less than a minute each to outline their position on climate change during the 23-minute debate. And as we heard earlier, the Prime Minister had to remind one of News Hub's most prominent broadcasters that his organisation had signed up to a week of climate change coverage. So were those the exceptions or an indication of the media's priorities and how should journalists report on climate change in the future? Earlier this week, I put those questions to Adelia Hallett, the editor of Carbon News, New Zealand's only specialist climate change publication. But first, I asked the former Media Watch reporter how reporting had changed since she filed her first climate change story for a daily newspaper in the 1980s. Well, not enough, to be honest. I mean, back in the sort of late 80s, early 90s, that's about the time of the Rio summit, we were talking about climate change. It, it was kind of the big thing. I remember looking at a house um, with a real estate agent here in Whangarei, and the, the agent was sort of saying, oh, you want to make sure you're, you're well above the sea level rise. So, you know, it was in a public consciousness then. Then again, in the early 2000s to around about 2008, Coverage was picking up a bit then. It was it was a topic, a public topic again. Then then we had the GFC and it, it dived away again. So I I, I guess um, you know it's sort of come in cycles. I'm really hoping that this time it's around to stay. You actually were working at the time for Media Watch in around I think 2009 10, and you did do some pieces on climate change. One of your bugbears at the time was this kind of false equivalence, the idea that every time you had somebody on talking about climate change, you needed somebody who didn't believe in climate change. Has that improved over the years, or do you still see a bit of that happening? I think it's worse in other countries, particularly the US, than it is here. I think most mainstream media here now have kind of dropped that, with with a couple of notable exceptions. The BBC recently got smacked over for... (laughs) giving publicity to utter rubbish, really, junk science. Um, In the US, there's just been a paper come out which shows that if you are a climate contrarian, is the phrase that that is used now, if you're a climate contrarian, you're, you're... Basically, there's 49% more coverage given to climate contrarians than there is to actual climate science, to, to credible science, which is in stark contrast to the actual settledness of the science, which is... Probably most people know now that you know, about 97% of peer-reviewed science says that um, anthropomorphic or, or human-induced climate change is happening. How should the media deal with it, though? I mean, just this week we had a, a letter in from Gary of Valclutha, and he wrote, I'm angry with all media being biased and one-sided when it comes to climate change. All media say climate change is human-made and not one has mentioned anything about climate change being cyclical. Now, that is a commonly held view. We get letters like that. You hear them in the media. How should the media deal with that? Well, I think he actually raises a valid point in that... Yes, climate change, there have been cycles, they're called Milinkovitch cycles, and they've been going on for a a long time. But the real point I take from what people like he are saying is that there is a lack of understanding out there. And it's very easy to get polarised and in positions if we don't just present information in a way that's accessible and sort of non-threatening. So I actually think that the media should shy away from kind of 
beating their chests and saying, you know, keep away, climate denialists will never give you voice. You actually, you don't need to, to kind of stand on a soapbox about that. You can just make those judgments in everyday news judgment, as you do with every other issue. But, you know, we need to actually have that information out there that the site, yes, there are cycles, but... Um, if we were still following those, we would be heading into a cooling period and that, that what is happening is outside those cycles. It, it's it's not an, a difficult question to answer, but I think we do need to answer it as many times as people need us to. A comment you hear often is that we need to be careful of climate change fatigue, that there's just so much of it. We never hear the same, of course, about rugby or violent crime or celebrity fatigue. fatigue. <laughs> But how do you respond to that? And and does the media need to change the way it reports to, to avoid that sense of fatigue and, in fact, sometimes even despair with this avalanche of very grim news? I think that maybe we need to step away from labelling it. It is just news. It's not climate change news per se. It is just news. And actually, you know, the putting it in one box and saying, now, children, we're going to talk about climate change sort of makes it like a even a hated lesson at school, whereas if you, you thread it through everyday life, you know, kids can learn, say, technology while they're doing other stuff or reading. You know, our, our teachers now teach us maths while we're doing other things that we like. So it is quite possible to do that. And I think what we need to do is stop saying, right, now it's climate change um, being shoved down your throat and just integrate it far more. So, so for example, when you're talking about you know, economic matters, you can talk about how prices might go up over time for fossil fuel-driven energy sources. The spin-off had an interesting example of that, actually, as part of their climate change now coverage, which was that they turned their food page into a plant-based recipes only. But, of course, it's just for the week. I mean, should we really be having it in every aspect of our reporting? So should all publications be looking at having far more recipes that don't have meat or dairy products? Yes, for lots of reasons, <laughs> including climate change as well as health and, and all sorts of reasons. But I think, you know, it is a good example of of not, of not making climate change something over there. My feeling is that journos have, with, with a few notable exceptions, there are some excellent journalists out there like Rebecca McPhee, Charlie Mitchell, Jamie Morton, um, you know, who have done some ex- excellent stuff on on climate change. But on the whole, we've kind of, m- most journalists seem to have a bit of the um, recently reformed smoker <laughs> about them. You know, we sort of discovered it and, and, and we're making a big deal of it. And yeah, it is a big deal. It's the biggest story any of us will ever cover. But it is... It is just part of everything. It is part of politics. It's part of the economy. It's even part of sport, you know, because it's going to be too hot to play cricket. You know, they're even the um, they're, they're looking at whether they need to play cricket in shorts and <laughs> in times to come. So, you know, it, it's part of everything. I recently looked at the coverage of the proposed extension to the airport by Stuff, and Stuff has made a real commitment to climate change, but in its front page exclusive on the airport, on the extension, climate change wasn't mentioned at all. And that seems quite common that, that we'll have these big stories, but the climate element is is not always included. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And that, that really goes to the heart of what I what I think we need to do is actually say, but as the sea level rises, you know, these low-lying airports are going to be affected like this. Is this a good place to build it? Are there going to be as many flights in future as the price of carbon goes up? and you know driving emissions down and just the the plain old question what does 
increasing the amount of air travel due to the climate. You know, so at least it doesn't have to be emotive and screaming, but it just it's presenting that information there so that society can make the decisions it needs to make. You mentioned sea level rise. Last week there was this IPCC report on sea level rise, huge, important report. Came the day after Greta Thunberg's speech. Greta's speech was responded to, as everyone will know, by Mike Hosking, Duncan Garner, and those responses in themselves generated an avalanche of responses saying that is completely unfair, you shouldn't be attacking her, etc. In comparison, the IPCC report didn't receive any op-eds as far as I know. It was reported, but there was no op-eds. Is that a sign of something about the media and our inclination to report individual stories over more complicated issue-type stories. Yes, and it, it doesn't just apply in climate change, of course. It, it, it's been a trend over the last sort of 20 years. And, and also you've got to see it against the background of declining newsroom resources. You know, we don't have a lot of space in newsroom these days for reporters to bury their heads in subjects for... You know, become very knowledgeable about um, what are perceived as as sort of well, climate change has been re- perceived in newsrooms as a fringe topic for coverage. So, understanding things like the IPCC reports, you do need to have some background. You know, I went went back to university and studied it to, so that I could at least be more informed when I was interviewing people about it. I personally was quite disturbed about the wall to wall Greta coverage, not because I didn't think what she was saying was newsworthy, but because of this tendency we have to just latch on to um, an individual with some, you know, a bit of quirk in the story. And she is a 16-year-old girl. She's done some amazing stuff, but she's a 16-year-old girl. She doesn't have all the solutions. The ones that we really should be pinning over this are the, are the ones who have the power to, to make the changes and the ones who have failed to make the, the changes so far and and you know part of that i think is we in the media ourselves this is not a new problem you know it was the the first scientific paper on this came out in 1894 or 6 4 i think 1912 the rodney and Waitemata times was was reporting on it so you know there we go more than a century in more recent times and it's a, the the scale and immediacy of the problem really became aware to us in the 80s and scientists have repeatedly raised this, and the media has ignored it. You know, I know journalists who have left mainstream newspapers, large newspapers like The Herald, in frustration over a lack of coverage. They have been aware of the problems, they've been trying to get those stories up, and they have just been squashed. And it just, you know, I think we actually need to ask ourselves the question of what culpability do we have in the public and, and political failure to deal with this in a timely manner, and that would have saved us an awful lot of damage and grief. We also tend to individualise the solution. So I, I read a article on the Atomic Bulletin, you know, the Atomic Scientist Bulletin, mm. which was part of covering climate now, and they tackled that issue that's been tackled a lot of just how bad is air travel, and their conclusion was that it's travel itself that is terrible, and particularly travel which is powered by fossil fuels and if you reduce that to an individual it doesn't actually change much possibly we all travel a little bit less but if you look at it as a society and particularly say America it would mean that you would have fast trains powered by renewable energy but we do have this 
inclination, particularly with climate change for some reason, to reduce it to a kind of moral failure of individuals. So are we doing enough? Are we eating meat? Not should the economy move away from meat in general? Should we be coming up with alternatives to, to flying? Do you see that as a problem, that we've, we've atomised the solution? Yes, I do. I mean, it's a very glib thing. You'll see it all over social media and you get it in person as well. You know, did you come to the protest in a fossil fuel car? Well, yes, I did because there are no buses and it's, you know, I live, I live 10 miles away. <laughs> you know, you, there's a tendency to dismiss the issue because of um, individuals are unable to do something about it. What we need is, is vast systemic change. And I think we've got this real reluctance to have those kind of conversations. I mean, we, we, we haven't really seriously questioned the way we do things since the early 80s with the neoliberal um, changes that, that swept through under the, um, the Longy government. We, we don't really have those kind of big conversations anymore. Is there a different way of doing it? There are some excellent people. Um, there's, a, there's a group called the Wise Response Group, for example, which is, um, Sir Geoffrey Palmer is the patron and um, Emeritus Professor Sir Alan Mark is the, um, the chair. It, it includes some of our, our, our best and brightest thinkers. Now, they have been trying to get um, discussions going on how we do things for sort of, I don't know, seven or eight years. They petition Parliament, they, they, they hold meetings, they do all sorts of things. But they struggle to get noticed. You know, these, these are people who really do know their stuff and they are asking some of those big questions about, about capitalism, about the way in which we structure our society and having those big rethinks. But those are the sort of conversations we don't want to have and, and the media is not really playing its fourth estate role, which is making sure that those voices who are credible are being heard. There was one issue which I thought was particularly well covered during the week, and and that's the issue of whether natives or pine trees are the most valuable way or most effective way of combating climate change. There was a great piece, Root and Branch, by Charlie Mitchell and Stuff, Eloise Gibson wrote about it on Newsroom. Carbon News, your publication, had a piece by Jim Salinger. Now, they were in-depth, interesting articles, but by the end of it, I still didn't know, and I felt confused. The science is complicated about exactly what we should be doing, and the thing that makes it confusing is that Salinger and others argue that pine trees actually extend the life of methane. It's complicated stuff. How do we deal with that? It's just... It's a difficult thing to get across. Yes, and and, and there, there's got to be room for complicated. I mean, we don't shy away from complicated about other things, whether it's politics, economics or rugby. There are discussions about rugby which go completely over my head, but I am capable of understanding the basic score and that, that um, Japan beat Ireland <laughs> unexpectedly. You know, the, So I think we need to have a range of of. Coverage. We can't just say everything is simple so that people who don't have a lot of background understand it. We need to be able to have those more in-depth things. And carbon users readers tend to be people who, who have been following this stuff for a long time and understand it. So our stories are pitched at that level. But I think, I think you do identify a good point that we're, we're kind of past the very basic climate change as a problem, you know, what, what is the greenhouse effect? But I think we've got a, a hold for stories which which take some of the complicated ideas and make them more simple so that, that it broadens the number of people who, who can read it and understand it. If you were appointed the editor of one of our major news organisations next week, what, what would you do? How, how would you change the coverage? 
I would say every journalist and every story they write or prepare um, for broadcast, they had to they had to ask that question. And what does climate change mean in this? Actually, it's not just journalists who need to do it; it's every aspect of society. But in the media specifically, that's the big change I would make. That you you say, how does climate change change this? Whether it's how do we cut emissions? Is this going to be possible in future? Th- those sorts of questions. I would also talk to the people running the news desk, the ones who actually decide who's the copy tasters and, and, and rank the stories, and say, look, not just at the sensationalist or the, the kind of the, the grabbiness of a story, but actually how important is it and how many people does it affect? And you know, how, how big are the impacts from this? Because in news, we're, we're, we're sort of stuck in this tyranny of, of the urgent over, over the important. Something's breaking, something's happened. And in the scale of things, climate change is not quite as immediate unless you've got a big natural disaster happening. But at the end of the day, it's much more important and much more significant and will affect many, many, many more people. So I think we, I, I would be instructing staff to, to make that call in judging what, what, what we lead newspapers and bulletins with. Do you think the types of changes you would make to the motoring and travel, for example, could lead to a massive drop in your income from advertising? Yeah, well, that, that's the, uh, <laughs> that's the, the challenge, isn't it? And it, it's hard. You know, I'm, Carbon News is a, is a totally unsubsidised private um, um, publication that su- survives on um, goodwill and, and hard work, basically. Um, it, if you want to make a fortune, don't go into climate change coverage, or certainly not, not thus far. You... It is a hard thing, but you don't really become a journalist to make a fortune. You you become a journalist because you you need to tell those stories. You believe in the role of, of the media, the, re, the media's role in, in informing the public so it can make the decisions it needs to make. That hasn't happened because we haven't made the decisions we need to make. We haven't cut emissions, which we now need to do very, very urgently. And I, I do believe that a lot of that um, does lie at our feet. The... Um, even you know, though the advertising model is broken, it is still the major funder, though. You know, so it's not. Yeah, it is. So they are dependent on the goodwill of motoring companies, of travel companies. Is that an impossible tension? No, I don't think so, because you know they've survived without you know the goodwill of of tobacco companies and hunting companies, you know, safari type companies. Um, I think the. If if it becomes mainstream quickly enough, which I, which I think, touch wood, I think is happening, then those motoring companies they need they still need to advertise. So, if there isn't kind of like outliers who who can deliver the audience they want, they um, they're still going to have to to, to go through them. I mean, I realise saying that that we've we've got the huge problem of of um, Facebook advertising, and it's one of the problems that we've we've had to contend with is the fact that climate change has been the time that climate change is needed to be covered covered has coincided with the with the demise of of big newsrooms with that um that revenue there having said that i still don't think that gives you the moral right to ignore what's happened or what is happening can you think of any kind of parallels to climate change where a scientific issue has had incredibly important implications but basically been ignored? Well, 
funny you should say that because I was chatting this morning to um, a, a recently retired journo called um, Colin Taylor who had a career in journalism of 56 years in newspapers and he was telling me how in the 1960s when he was working for the Christchurch Star which was a daily newspaper in those days that he was sent along to a, a, a scientific conference um, where it it came out that there was a proven link between cigarettes and, and lung cancer. And he said um, his his 1,000-word story was, he wrote, and it was spiked. It, it wasn't run because the editor, who himself was a smoker, um, spiked it because he said it, it was um, alarmist and, um, and, and was scaremongering mongering, and that um, they weren't, also he was worried it would scare advertisers. Um, and a bit more recently, in the 70s, he was covering an, an international scientific conference in Wellington, 1974, in which they were warning about the dangers of the um, of aerosol sprays um, damaging the ozone layer. And he said the story was run, but it was then attacked and poo-pooed as alarmist and scaremongering by vested bus- business interests and, and, um, and people in public office. And, of course... You know, history tells us that both of those things were a problem. That um, we were, we did eventually act on the ozone hole with the Montreal Protocol, and we got somewhere with that. We are making progress with that. Um, t- tobacco is still a problem, although we are making progress with that. But I think that it's it's really sad if we if we don't lose. Um, sorry, if we don't learn the lessons from those previous cases and think really hard about what our role as journalists is and not just journalists but but publishers and because that's where the power resides and I think that that you know we, we do hold culpability and we need to take our role seriously. That was Carbon News Editor and veteran climate change reporter Adelia Hallett.